0: you doing today? You want to hear the gospel today? All right. Those of you who were with us in the prayer service last Sunday evening will recall that within that service, we prayed for the nation of Israel. We are encouraged to do this, of course, by the psalmist in Psalm 122. We want to be faithful and regular in doing that. (coughs) Excuse me. If you follow the Jewish calendar, and I know there are many of you here who do, Then you are aware that this past week, on Thursday and Friday, it marked the beginning of the Jewish New Year in what is known as Rosh Hashanah, or also known as the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, It also has other names that are associated with it. It's some people, it's sometimes referred to as the Day of Shouting. And so i just let you know, it's okay if a shout comes out today, because it's perfectly part of where we are in this season of the year. Anybody have a shout today? All right. Rosh Hashanah, known as the Feast of Trumpets primarily, the blasting of the trumpet. The purpose of this feast is to honor God as creator. It is a call for repentance. And it is a call for restoration of relationship with God and with others. Rosh Hashanah is the first of three fall feasts, all of which have to do with the end of God's harvest season. This first feast opens the season of high holy days and leads us quickly into the second feast, which is Yom Kippur, also known as the Day of Atonement, which takes place this coming week from sunset this coming Friday night until nightfall on Saturday night. That's the holiest day of the year in Judaism. Yom Kippur marks the time, and you've heard this many, many times, when the the priest entered into the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of the people. And so once again, the theme is atonement and for the calling of repentance from sin. This Jewish calendar puts us today right in the middle of these high holy days in which there is a call to repentance. And therefore, if you're going to talk about a call for repentance and you're in a season like we are today where we are in the Jewish calendar, then you have to talk about that which puts us in the need of repenting. So this morning, I'm going to talk about that very popular subject called sin. How many wish you'd stayed home already? I'm talking about sin and why it is so important that we are repeatedly called back to the place of repentance. Now, I know that some of you have probably already tuned me out. I know that happens, and grab for your device or whatever you're doing, assuming that I'm preaching just to a a certain people today, preaching just to unbelievers or to sinners today. And if you're already saved and have been for years, you, you may think you don't need to hear about sin. But let me tell you the truth. My intention today is to preach to everybody in the room, starting with the balcony all the way through to the main floor, and also including the dude that's standing behind this pulpit today. I'm preaching to him, too. If you, have ever, if you have never accepted Jesus, if you've never made him the Lord of your life, you've never asked Christ to forgive you of your sin, then yes, I'm talking to you today, and I want you to listen. And I'm going to give you something to think about today, I hope. But if you've accepted Christ years ago or decades ago, and you've been walking with Jesus all this time, and you've been serving him all these years, I want you to know something this morning. You are off the hook, and I'm not talking to you unless... Unless you ever have a thought go through your head that you know is sin and you take action on it, I'm not talking to you unless you have a tongue that some- can sometimes get you in trouble. I hear the nervous laughter of the room. A tongue that sometimes is capable of speaking that which is not true. Uh, we call it lying. A tongue that's capable of speaking sharply or unkindly to your spouse or to your kids or to others. I'm not talking to you unless you have a tongue that's capable of engaging in um, what we call gossip. So you're off the hook today uh, unless you have a a thought problem, unless you have a, a tongue problem. You're off the hook today unless you have a temper that occasionally gets out of control. Now, Dan, you've gone to meddling now, right? You're off the hook today unless you've ever had an integrity issue with business matters or money matters, or your business dealings, or, or maybe even the IRS. You're off the hook today if you, uh, it, and unless you have ever had an issue with what your eyes see, what your ears hear, where your feet go, what your hands do, and how your heart responds. So in other words, I'm trying to figure out who I'm not talking to today. Let me just ask, is there anybody I am talking to today? Raise your hand. Go ahead and tell me right now. All right. Hopefully, I I didn't leave anybody out. So the question might be, Dan, we have to repent again? And the answer to that is, it's a resounding yes. Well, Well, wasn't it good enough when that first time I asked Jesus to come into my heart and to forgive me of my sins, wasn't that, wasn't that good enough? Well, that got you saved. That got you into the kingdom of God. But here's the truth. A person submitted to the lordship of Jesus should be repenting often. Come on, don't go to sleep on me yet. That's why these annual Jewish feasts were focused on a regularly scheduled season, lest we forget, lest we get so lax in our understanding that he is a holy God, as the choir is saying so wonderfully about today, that what separates us from a holy God is our sin. And so lest we get lax about understanding that we must keep the way clear, nothing between my soul and the Savior, keep the way clear. That's why these feasts were put into position, asking God to forgive them. The people of God ought to be the ones who live in a perpetual state of asking God's forgiveness. So why do we, even people who've lived for the Lord a long time, why, why do we have to keep coming back to that place? Why is that necessary? Well, we know with 2 Chronicles seven fourteen it says, if my people who are called by my name who this morning says, Yes, I'm called by his name. Well, then this message is for you. It's not, don't tune it out. It's not just for people who are who we call unbelievers or the unsaved. The, the Bible says, if my people who are called by my name, that's us, the people of God, what, what, what must we do? Humble ourselves and pray and seek his face. And what? Turn from our wicked ways. And then his promise is that he will hear, he will forgive, and he will heal our land. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yes, we should be living in a perpetual state of asking God's forgiveness simply because we want to be in right relationship with God. Can I get a witness to that today? But also, there is another reason, and I hear this less and less all the time, why we want to be sure that we are in right relationship with God because it is still true. We have a king who is coming again to this earth. And I'm not ashamed to stand here today and say to every one of you, be ready when Jesus comes. He's coming on the clouds, we sing it so often. Kings and kingdoms will bow down. And every chain will break as broken hearts declare his praise. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. Bless God. And every knee will bow before him. Our God is the lamb, the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. His blood breaks the chains and every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. And I am here to declare it loudly this morning, and that is this. Jesus is coming again, and nothing, nothing can stop him. So church, take your Bibles or your devices and turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. I will jump around within that chapter and maybe a little around it. But you want to stay there, Romans chapter 7. I want to remind you of something this morning, and that is this. Sin never, ever delivers what it promises. There is always a net loss when the night is over. There is always a net loss when the season is over. There is always a loss when you live not for God but when you live for yourselves and live in sin. It was almost 300 years ago, one of the Puritan writers named Thomas Brooks, he wrote these words, Satan promises the best but pays with the worst. He promises honor but he pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure but he pays with pain. He promises profit, but pays with loss. He promises life, but he pays with death. And so what Paul the Apostle does in the first seven chapters of Romans is this. He shows us the depth of destruction that comes to a life that is not lived for God. He shows us the net loss of this issue called sin. And he shows us in these first seven chapters of Romans, he shows us in picture form that when sin is is finished with you, when whatever it is that has you in a script is finished with you, there will always, always, always be a net loss. That's why the only life that it pays to live is a life lived for Jesus. And we can can see clearly that from Romans chapter 8 and forward. But Paul has to set the table for us here in these first seven chapters. And one of the first things Paul does is to dispel the listen to me. Listen, listen. He dispels the myth that is so invades our society today. It invades our thinking today. And the further we go down this uh this journey of time, it becomes more and more acceptable, even within the church, to think this. And Paul takes a direct, fatal shot at this thinking, which says this. It talks about the goodness of man. And he does it in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, where he says this, Nothing good lives in me, that is, in my nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. The only time something good is inside of me is when Jesus comes inside and takes over and changes my life. And this is the, clu- the conclusion that each one of us must come to before we can jump into Romans chapter 8, which is the victory chapter. Oh, we love that chapter. But we must wrestle with, we must look at, we must embrace and come to the full conclusion that no good thing lives within us. Sin deceives us by making, uh, making us think that we are good, but leads us along this myth which causes us to believe that that good is because of us. or it is, it is us. It is in us. And that is simply not true. Can I just tell you what's true for me today? The only good part of me is Christ in me, the hope of glory. One of the dangers... In the Christian life, is to take credit for what God does. It is, a, it is a strong temptation because as humans, we have this desperate need for affirmation and for uh, gratification and, and, you know, like me for what I do and what I've done and look at my accomplishments and look how I sing or look how I do have this skill set. And, and we take credit for what, for what God does. And this was the Assyrians' problem. They were a weak nation, a weak nation, until God chose to bless them in order to use them as an instrument to punish the Israelites. However, the more that God blessed them, the more confident they became in their own strength. They got to thinking, hey, we're pretty good. Look at this. But it was God's blessing causing that to happen. When their farmers had good crops, they credited their farming skills rather than God. When their army won a victory, their generals took the credit. When the nation experienced prosperity, the Assyrians attributed to their military and their political might. And finally, what happened was this. God had to point out the absurdity of their conclusions as he did in Isaiah chapter 10, verses five through 19. We think the good is in us. And that's why, church, it is sometimes easier to handle poverty or weakness than it is to handle wealth and strength. Big amen on that. Thank you, dear. It's true. It's sometimes easier to handle poverty. None of us want to. It's easier to handle poverty or weakness than it is to handle wealth or strength. Here's why. Poverty causes us to recognize our need for God. Guess what? When the bank account gets empty, where do we go? Oh, God, I need you to be Jehovah Jireh. Help us now. And we're not at all ashamed or afraid to admit that we need God when the bank account is empty. Can I get an amen to that? And prosperity, on the other hand, persuades us that we no longer require him. And it's true. Scripture holds several examples of those who assumed they were self-sufficient only to realize their dire poverty. Samson was one of them. He was the strongest person alive, but he forgot that his strength came from God. Once God removed his strength, Samson was simply reduced to a, a, a pitiful slave. Saul was the first king of Israel, and yet when God removed his spirit from this proud monarch, he became a paranoid, petty man seeking counsel from the occult. Be careful how you handle the success God gives you, believing that it's all you or because of your ingenuity and the good that's within you. As you enjoy his blessings in your family, in your business, in your ministry, Keep in mind that you are still an instrument in the hands of an almighty God. Dear friend, the good in you is not because of you. It's only because of God in you. He is the treasure that lives inside of us. Does anybody agree with me this morning? Now, we all want to enjoy the benefit and blessings of Romans 8. Me too. There is now, therefore... No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We love that. I do too. But listen to me carefully, church, this morning. To embrace that scripture without embracing chapter 7, particularly the part that says no good thing lives within me, to embrace chapter 8 without realizing and living through and acknowledging the truth of chapter 7 is to trespass. Jumping into chapter 8 of Romans... Without acknowledging the truth and the reality of chapter 7, it's trespassing. We must recognize that without Jesus, we don't have it and we are no good. But Jesus comes in and he changes us. And when we buy into the myth that there is good within us, I'm preaching the word to you today. You may not like it, but I'm telling you the truth. When we buy into the myth that there is good within us, it also deceives us into believing that we are victims instead of the villains that we are. It deceives us into believing that we are deprived instead of depraved. It dismisses responsibility when we buy into the myth that there is good within us, and the issue is sin. When Charles Finney, the American evangelist, It was Charles Finney who said this. He said, sin is the most expensive thing in the universe. You might come up with in your mind, diamonds, gold, treasures of the earth, the most expensive thing. No, no, no. Sin is the most expensive thing in the universe. If it is forgiven sin, then it costs God his son. If it is unforgiven sin... It costs the sinner eternity. It's the most expensive thing in the universe. And we will never understand how amazing forgiveness is until we fully understand how devastating sin is. That's what Paul communicates us to, us, to us in this book of Romans. And he says this, there is no one that is strong enough, big enough, smart enough, Powerful enough or rich enough to defeat it. The defeat of sin in our lives has to come from outside of ourselves. Hundreds of you here today know that the man who started Teen Challenge almost 50 years ago, we're going to enjoy their banquet soon, was a man by the name of, what was his name? Yep, David Wilkerson. In case for any reason you're not familiar with it, it's a program for those with life controlling issues. Now, it may be called Teen Challenge. I'm sorry, ladies, but in the years of hosting us here for many years, we've seen just a few of you who were slightly beyond the teen years who came to the program. And that's okay. There are now, last count I had, it may have grown since then, there are now 1,100 centers. 1,100 centers in over 30 countries. It's helping those in bondage literally around the world. Thank God for Teen Challenge. Amen. Now come to their banquet whenever it is that's coming up in just a few days. When he was alive, David Wilkerson told the story, and this was brought back to me again recently. He told the story that at the Teen Challenge Center in Brooklyn, they had a young man who was so addicted to heroin That when he came in, he told him this. He said, if you don't chain me to that radiator over there by the wall. I remember the old-fashioned radiators that had the heat. If you don't chain me to that radiator, I am leaving tonight to go back out. I want to stay. But there's this thing in me that wants to go out and get heroin. It's bigger than I am. And there is this thing in me that wants to go out. And if you don't handcuff me to that radiator, I will go out and get drugs tonight. And you know what? They did it. They handcuffed him to the radiator. And David Wilkerson said this the next morning, he was gone. And so was the radiator. Well, that's a funny visual, but you want to talk about the strength of sin? Imagine walking down the streets of Brooklyn, those who've been there, Flatbush Avenue or or Smith Avenue, and seeing a man walking around hauling a radiator behind him. That's how strong sin can be, and it is no respecter of persons doesn't matter how smart you are, how rich, how intelligent, how powerful, doesn't matter how many degrees you have, none of that. It doesn't matter. Sin can get us to do things we would never otherwise want to do. And so what's going to happen here? Paul paints a picture for us what sin is and what it does, and I'm going to give it to you in about six very very quick points here. Number 1. Romans 7:17 7, tells us this that sin is an unevictable tenant. I'm not real sure that's a word, but it is this morning. Sin is an unevic- a tenant that cannot be evicted. Might be a better way of saying it. An unevictable tenant. Romans seven seventeen says this. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living or, or dwelling or making its home in me that does it. He's saying that our life is a, a house and sin comes in and to run the house. Sin comes in and it takes over the house. Who knows what I'm talking about today? S- give sin one room and it will quickly take over the whole house. And just about the time when you think, well, this is private, this is just me, I'm not hurting anybody, what I'm doing isn't affecting anybody else, that's a lie. Just wait because sin starts expanding into places that you didn't want it to go when you thought you could contain it. Sin becomes a tenant that just keeps taking over room after room after room. And it takes over the mind, it takes over the heart, it takes over the eyes, hello, it takes over the ears, it takes over your feet, every part of us. And Paul in Romans 7:17 7, says, "Sin is a tenant that cannot be evicted." without help from the outside. Number two, Romans 7, 23, Paul says this. He says, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Second point is this. Sin is a prison warden. It's a prison warden. It puts you in jail, it locks you up, and it throws away the key. Not only do you have this uninvited guest living in your home, but this guest becomes a prison warden who locks you up. And you and I then become a prisoner when we give in to it. Number three, Romans 7, 14. Paul says this. So the trouble is not with the law that's been given. For it is spiritual and good. No, he says the trouble is with me. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. The problem, church, is not the righteous standard that God has placed upon us. The problem is the sin and rebellion within me for which I need to repent that keeps cropping up, which is why I need to constantly be in a state of repentance. Because here's what the truth is sin makes me a piece of merchandise, it will sell you out. It takes ownership of you and it sells you out. it sells you into anger, it sells you into lust and pornography, it sells you into insanity. It sells you into sexual promiscuity, it sells you into independence and selfishness. According to Romans 7:14, "When I'm in sin, I'm just a piece of merchandise owned by something else that's selling me to the highest bidder, just putting me out there to be bought. Who will take this person? What man wants her? What woman wants him? Sin sells you like a piece of merchandise, not the valuable person that God created you to be. Number one, it's an unevictable tenant that you let in and it won't leave. Number two, it makes you a prisoner and it becomes your prison warden. Number three, it treats you like a piece of merchandise. Number four, and I'm jumping back, one chapter to chapter 6, Romans 6, verse 12, it says this. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. Do not let sin what? Do not let sin what? We sang this morning, God, you reign. I was thinking about this scripture as we were saying that, Lord... Let your kingdom come. Your will be be done. You reign within me today. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. The word "reign" is a word used of a dictator. It's a word used of a regime. And Paul is basically letting us know this: sin is a tyrant, and it wants to reign. Comes in and says, "I'll tell you what to do. I'll tell you where to go. I'll tell you how to react." I'll tell you how to conduct yourself, even if it's not the way you want to. And when it reigns within you, it says, here's now what you're going to watch. Here's where your eyes are now going to go. This is how you're going to behave. It's the tyrant. It's telling you. And just when you think you've, you've overcome or just when you think you've gotten the victory, suddenly something gets triggered that you weren't expecting. Something came along at just the right time. And sin, like a dictator, drags you right back into its grip. Am I telling the truth today? Paul goes on to say then in Romans 3, verse 9, well, then should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? Should we in Bethesda conclude that we've got it all together, we're better than everybody else? Is that what we should conclude? No, not at all. For we have already shown, Paul says, that all people, say all, all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, Are under the power of sin. He is saying that every person, religious, no matter what denomination you belong to or grew up in all all of your life or non religious, is under the power of sin, including himself. And here's what he's saying it is a crushing weight. He's telling them, even as he's telling you and me this morning sin is a crushing weight that no one person in this place, including me, avoids being under this dominating, crushing weight. So sin is a tenant that won't leave. Not only that, it's this tyrant or it's a dictator. It's a prison warden that locks the door on you, takes you like a piece of merchandise and sells you, and it's a crushing weight. Number six, uh, this may be the last one. I'll see if I've got some more in a minute for you. He says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, and you know this verse. You know, we always like the last part of this verse. Go ahead and put it up. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now, which part of that verse do we hang on to? The last part. I've done my share of shouting and rejoicing and praising God over the last part of that. But I, I, I looked at that from a different angle this week. I had to look at it where sin abounded. That's the, the, the key word here. What does that say about sin? It abounds. It's a word that was used for, for, for a disease, like a, a plague that was spreading. And Paul is saying that sin is like a contagious disease. It can be passed on to others. It abounds. It takes, from where you are, it can be spread to others. And so he says this, you want to know how powerful sin is? You want to know how powerful sin is? It's an unevictable tenant. That you can't, if, cannot evict on your own, with all of your promises and all the showing up at church and all the good things that you do, which we're thankful you do all those things. that is not what takes care of the sin issue within you. He says it's a prison warden, it locks you up. you think you are free, but you are behind those bars having to do and what you wish you wouldn't do. He says it treats you like a piece of merchandise with no care of who of who, of who you are or what your background is. He says it's a dictator. It's a a tyrant, takes total control. It reigns within you. It's a crushing weight. And he says, and it spreads like a disease. Everyone you touch will be affected by it. You think it's personal, but it will affect your marriage. It will affect your children. It will affect your parenting. It will affect everything about you. And this is what the Apostle Paul wanted us to know about sin. Sin is not some sweet sentimental word. It's a radical, violent explosion Within the soul of every human being. And no one seems to be preaching about it anymore. At least I don't hear much of it. But with the soon return of Christ, and I do believe Christ is coming again, and this Jewish holiday season of repentance, I couldn't help but tackle the subject this morning. Go ahead, call me whatever you want to call me old school. Call me foolish, call me anything you want, but it's my passion for your ever-living soul that drives me to tell you the truth this morning, that sin will destroy you, it will crush you, it will defeat you, and there is one way out, and that's the person of Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. I do not apologize. You know what concerns me most about the church in 2017? It's that the church has started to redefine sin. We've gotten very sophisticated. I understand we live in a different day, and generation. I I get all that. But we have decided we have the ability to redefine sin that is different from what the Word of God says. And frankly, I think that's a very dangerous position to be in. Listen to me. When you start to redefine sin, then what you are saying is this. That you don't need the cross and you don't need Calvary. That's what you're saying when you redefine sin. You don't need the cross. When you don't call sin exactly what it is, sin, then who needs the cross? Because if you lessen the disease, you will lessen the cure. Let me say that again. Some of you weren't sleeping on me. If you lessen the disease, if you say it's less than what it really is, then you lessen the cure. You soften the tone of the real disease of sin or whatever you want to call it now and then who needs Good Friday? Who needs a Resurrection Sunday? But the truth is this, you and I are powerless to fix the sin issue ourselves. I don't know about you, but I need something else. I need someone else. I need the power of the cross. I need the power of the blood of the Lamb. I need Jesus. And thank God Jesus did come. Thank God Jesus did die. And thank God Jesus did break the power of sin. Blessed be his name forever. For when Jesus comes, He breaks the power and he unseats the tyrant. He unseats the dictator. When Jesus comes, he bankrupts the merchant that has tried to sell you as a piece of merchandise. When Jesus comes, he blows open every locked door that has held me in bondage. When Jesus comes, he gives me a clean bill of health for the disease that has touched my soul called sin. When Jesus comes, he unties this crushing weight that is hanging on me and he begins to say, freedom, freedom, freedom. In Jesus' mighty name. Come on, give him praise in this house today. Anyone who's thankful for the blood of the Lamb. I hope we all understand here today that repenting of your sin is not just so that you get to go to heaven. Some people will want to come to an altar and say a few words just in hopes that they won't go to hell. But you need to understand something. When you come to this altar and you truly repent of your sin and you truly recognize that sin has you in the very grip, uh, it's, its tight grip upon you in ways that maybe you've not even been willing to acknowledge or accept. Something huge when you come and repent before God in this particular season right now, when you come and repent before God of your sin, something huge and cataclysmic happens the moment you ask Christ to come into your life. It's not just a few little pretty words and a God bless you and you're on your way to do what you always did. No, you come and what's happening is to become a Christian, it's an overthrow, it's like a military coup. When Jesus comes in, he walks in and he starts throwing people out. He starts throwing stuff out, saying, You don't belong here, and you don't belong here, and you don't belong here because this person now belongs to Jesus and belongs to me. It's an overthrow. It's dramatic. It's huge. It's cataclysmic. Jesus says, Smash those doors open. This is my property. This person now belongs to Jesus, belongs to me. This is my daughter. This is my son. And he comes in with force and he comes in with authority. That's what it means to be saved, church. Do not leave this place today without saying I need this tenant evicted today. I need the tyrant disposed of today. I need the disease of sin to be gone and a clean bill of health can come to me today. And I can tell you that it only comes through one person and his name is Jesus. That's why it's so important for you and I to understand what Paul was saying to us. We must embrace the first seven chapters of Romans. It's important that we understand it. We must embrace the gravity of our sin. We must understand that sin, no matter how large or small you want to view it or you decide to measure it, it still separates us from a holy God. And we must not allow that to happen, particularly in this season of Rosh Hashanah. It's a season of repentance, it's a season of calling upon the name of God to restore us back unto Him. Who wants it today? As he approaches the end of the chapter, he says, when I said it a while ago, no good thing is inside of me so that he can show you that the only way out of this, the only way out of that which has you in, captive, in, in its grip, it's not by you, it's not by your government, it's not by your money, it's not by your job, it's not by a diploma, great, but it's only by the Lamb of God who died for us. Oh, blessed be the Lord. Is anybody thankful for salvation today? I don't know about you. I'm just glad I'm saved. I know what I've deserved. I know. I know exactly what I... But God, in His great mercy, reached down and said, No, I want Him to be mine. And I don't understand that. It makes no sense to me. But that's what the mercy of God does. Who's thankful for the mercy of Jesus today. If we could really roll back the curtain of your life, you may look all put together and spiffy here when you walk into Bethesda on Sunday morning, but if we could really roll back the curtain of our life or the curtain of our heart and see what's there and how far sometimes we slip and fall as we allow the spirit of the age to come upon us and get influenced by that which is around us. Oh God, keep us from the spirit of the age. Keep us with our face set like a flint upon you. And your standard of righteousness. And what you have called us to be. As I close, I'm going to read to you the ending of Romans chapter 7. And I just want you to listen very carefully. Please don't move around these last few minutes. Please, no one. I want, I want to read from this paraphrase that puts this passage in a unique light. Pastor Brent, would you come, please? Listen carefully. I read this paraphrase because of the, the, the powerful way that it communicates. It's Romans chapter 7. The power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions. I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it. I just can't do it. I decide to do good, but I I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. Am I telling anybody's story today? This is what Paul tells us. He says, it happens so regularly that it's predictable now. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, those are the parts that take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Is there no one? Is there not a program? Is there not a a self-help book? Isn't there something at Barnes & Noble? Isn't there a website? Surely there's got to be some TED Talk that can get me through this. Because the desperation of my soul. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Verse 25, he says this, the answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can, and he does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradiction, where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I am pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different than what I actually want to do. Listen to me, church, in these final closing moments of this message. There is an answer. It's not the church. It's not a denomination. It's not a label. There is one answer it is Jesus and only Jesus. He is the answer. And Paul says, Let me show you in the most descriptive way that I can that which I've taken you through this morning the power of sin by those selected verses from the first. Seven chapters. But here's what you need to understand this morning. Regardless of your condition, regardless of the desperation of your condition, God loves you and He wants you. Those are not empty words, it's not a platitude. God loves you and He wants you. And it doesn't matter what you've done. I said it doesn't matter what you've done, and it doesn't matter who you are, he will hear the prayer today of someone who will call upon his name. He wants you more than you can possibly ever imagine. You may have wrists that are all sliced up from the pain of your life, dealing with so much pain. He still loves you. There may be a scar across your stomach because someone convinced you to have an abortion He still wants you. No matter how sin has ravaged your life, God cares. He loves you and he wants you. And he'll answer your prayer today as you repent of your sin and ask God for his forgiveness. Now let me read these final words from Romans chapter 8. This is what we all want to get to. Remembering Paul has finished chapter 7 by saying, I've tried everything. And nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? But then he gives us this in Romans chapter 8. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God, oh, and I love this part right here. God went for the jugular. When he sent his own son, he didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. Can someone say hallelujah today? Bow your heads in prayer with me, please.